let me welcome you all to this special seminar in the East Asia series, um, part of the Asian Studies Centre here at St Anthony's College. I'm Rosemary Foote, and I'm very pleased to welcome today Dr Sheila Smith. As you'll know from the posters that we're putting around, she's a senior fellow in Japan Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations and based in Washington, <coughs> D.C., which gives her all sorts of exciting insights into uh, East Asian, U.S. East Asian policy. Uh, she is here today mainly, uh, but not solely, to talk about her new book, Intimate Rivals. I kept thinking of other words beginning with I, you know, such as inveterate rivals or, <laughs> or maybe inadvertent rivals. But anyway, it's called intimate rivals. Um, uh, so at least a third of the talk will be about this book and, and its main thesis. Um, she, of course, Sheila ranges uh, far wider than this in terms of her interests and her writings. She's written about... Japanese military reform, about, of course, the U.S.-Japan alliance, about the Abe administration. Uh, she's talked um, uh, uh, quite extensively uh, in this particular year because of the 70th anniversary Thanks. of World War II and obviously the expectations about the statements that the Abe administration um, were to make on, on that anniversary. Um, so she has a very wide experience of U.S. East Asian and uh, broader East Asian relations and is willing, of course, to entertain questions across the whole uh, <laughs> gamut of topics, including U.S. domestic politics and, no, no. and uh, foreign policy, if need be, Only if, if we go there. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, without more ado, I'd like to welcome her most warmly. I think this Thank might you. be your first trip to Oxford. It is, is. It is. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry that this hasn't happened before, but you know, now we've started, we can do it again. Great, and I'd love that. So, um, let me hand over to Dr. Smith and uh, let's give her a customary welcome. Thank you, Rosemary. I'm delighted to be at Oxford. I've been wanting to come for a long time, especially because I can have spent some time with you, and so I'm also delighted to have a chance to meet all of you and to talk to you a little bit about the future of Asia, but also about our engagement collectively in the region. Um, I thought what I would do is exactly what Rosemary set out, as I talk a little bit about the book and why I wrote a book. Uh, I can explain Intimate Rivals as a title, if you'd like, um, but then sort of telescope out a little bit and talk about the island disputes and maritime boundary issues that are fairly pervasive in, in East Asia at the moment. Um, and then at the end, if you're interested, we can talk a little bit about U.S. policy towards Asia. Um, but we'll see where we are um, at the end of all that. Let me first talk a little bit about Intimate Rivals. I will explain the title because yeah. um, I get a lot of, uh, of questions uh, about the title. Why Intimate Rivals and why Rivals? And, you know, I get, you know, mm. contests on both, both of the words. Um, but at the end of the, the book, uh, which looks at four areas of pretty deep contention, uh, policy contention between Japan and China. Um, it was very clear to me that the relationship between Japan and China, of course, is old. It's culturally very deep. Uh, we may think of the rivalry at the moment as the kind of superficial issue of territorial disputes or whatever dispute of the moment, but in fact, this is a relationship that goes back centuries, right? Um, and in, in many, many ways, um, many Japanese still look at the relationship as being fairly intimate, even though there is this new dimension to it today. I use the word rivals, Largely because if you're, Asia, if you're an Asianist and you look back at the region, you know that Japan and China have never shared power in Asia. 
China has been dominant, uh, and in, in, in the ancient times before modern, the arrival of the modern European powers, right? Uh, and then Japan uh, rose to be the most sophisticated, technologically advanced country of the region. Today, both countries are sophisticated. Both countries are wealthy, or at least on their way to being wealthy, and both, both of them can exert a certain amount of military power in the region. Uh, so whether or not they end up negotiating a way to share power or whether or not they seek to uh, exercise influence outside of the region in different ways, we don't know yet. Uh, but it is historically the first moment uh, for the two countries to decide whether or not they're going to be able to be rivals. They, they want to be rivals or they want to be partners uh, in, in Asia Pacific. And so the rival word is to tease, tease a little interest, if you will, in this new relationship. Um, the larger thesis of the book and the way I present it uh, to take a step back from Japan and China is for those of you who are interested in international relations, we often talk about power transitions. It's also become very, a very easy way to talk about a transforming China today in Asia to talk about the rise of China. And it's a shorthand. And with that shorthand comes a lot of assumptions about what a power transition actually means. It means conflict. Uh, it means perhaps uh, an adjustment on the part of so-called status quo powers, rising versus established powers, status quo powers is the vocabulary that we often use. Um, but at least where I sit, and especially because I sit in Washington where this is a policy challenge as much as it's an analytical challenge, I wanted to get a little bit more texture on what, what, what we're talking about here when we're talking about the changing geostrategic uh, balance in Asia. And so it's a case study, if you will, to give a little texture about how countries outside the rising power experience that and how they react to it. Uh, and so that's one of the ways that I think about we ought to just get a little bit away from the shorthand and get a little bit more understanding of what are we actually talking about here in terms of influence uh, and, and reaction. So I use the word throughout the, the book. I use a, a transforming China, a changing China, and every now and then I use a rise of China, um, just, to, just, to, just to tease. But I think you know, there's a question mark in people's mind about what, what it is we're actually talking about here, and that's why I wanted to be a little bit explicit about that at the beginning. Clearly, this is a book about Japan. It's about Japanese experience of a country, its largest neighbor, uh, its most important Asian neighbor in many ways, and a neighbor with which it is deeply economically interdependent. Um, in a chapter, one of the chapters in the book, I lay out the connection between diplomacy and domestic interests, but I can do that during the Q&A a little bit more. Um, but what I wanted to tie in here was not just the tit-for-tat back and forth between Japan and China, but to actually explore a little bit beyond the world of diplomats and strategists, right? Beyond the beltway in the Washington context or Tokyo and, and Beijing, and understand a little bit more of the social actors, the economic actors and interests that are affected. Um, it's interesting to me that if I had to tell you today what I thought the rise of China meant for Japan, I'd say it's a series of impacts. It's not one. It's not all about territorial disputes, obviously. Uh, and there are, these impacts are social and political and economic before, in fact, I think they're strategic. And that's how they were understood in the last decade and a half or so in Japan. Um, so let me give you a little sense of my findings. I have a lot of people today, and especially in Washington, I'm not sure if it's part of the conversation here in the UK, but who, say, who think of Japan as turning to the right of becoming more nationalistic, and that the rise of China has produced greater nationalism in Japan. And I'll just to put this out front, we can talk more about it. I found very little evidence of widespread anti-Chinese nationalism in Japan. And by that, I simply mean that you can see in a lot of the opinion polling, popular sentiments 
of anxiety about China, skepticism perhaps about the Chinese government and its choices, but you don't see political behavior organized around a social movement of, that has an anti-China motivation. And so that's what I mean about nationalism. On the flip side, I also found very little evidence uh, that Japanese elites had, a, had thought of the rise of China as changing their basic strategic orientation. So I don't see a Japan that is rethinking its post-war strategy, uh, a strategy that depends largely on an open and liberal trading order, a strategy that depends for strategic protection on the U.S.-Japan alliance, and a strategy that continues to want to limit the military instrument in the exercise of national power. So that's a, that's a big mouthful, and we can come back to that at the end of the talk if you'd like. But I don't yet see strategic thinkers really beginning to take apart what I think is Japan's basic post-war orientation. There are questions, however, about will the inevitability of China's rise create that kind of change in Japan? So you're beginning to hear the question being asked, but not yet a new strategic response to this new rise in China. So basically this adjustment, and I use the word adjustment, uh, not accommodation, but adjustment to this new China has largely been incremental. Nobody should be surprised if you're a Japan foreign policy expert, you won't be surprised at that. Um, and it's very issue specific. And that was the part of, that I found, I was a little surprised myself by that uh, in the book. I was looking for and expecting to find more cross-fertilization uh, among policymakers, among different interest groups in Japan who were struggling uh, with influences from China, but I didn't actually find it. Um, so there are various interests of, within Japan that have felt currents of change that we can say are emanating from this changing China. Uh, but each set of interests coped with them very differently. And I'll tell you what I mean by that when I go through the case studies. Um, of the overarching um, policy response that I found in each of the policy areas, Japanese interest groups, and they vary from fishermen to consumer groups to coast guards, you know, and I'll, again, I'll talk more about that in the details of the case studies, but each of these interest groups are, found that there was, they were really looking to the Japanese government for a better response, better protection for their interests, rather than advocating a tougher stance on China. Um, and so there's, a, there's an intermediate position there for those of you thinking more strategically. Um, but I think at home, in the domestic sphere, there were calls for new policy reforms, uh, a better regulatory uh, reaction to some of the policy uh, influences emanating from China. Uh, and in particular, in one case study, it was better regulatory frameworks that would protect the, ja the Japanese consumers from economic influences from China. Um, globally or diplomatically, the Japanese government has moved away, I think, from bilateral problem solving with Japan. And that's the striking thing for those, again, for those of you who are interested in Japanese foreign policy, Japan has always seen the bilateral channels of negotiation with China as the preferred option for problem solving. Uh, and I think today that is not the case. Now, we can talk a little bit about very recent efforts to restore that relationship, and I, I think it's a little premature to say whether or not that's going to continue, but at least in the last 10, or 10 to 15 years or so, it was clear the Japanese government was beginning to seek external assistance in trying to cope uh, with some of the challenges coming from China. 
So, but but the the Japanese government used established even the Abe cabinet, which some people think is a little bit tougher than others. Um, but even the Abe cabinet has used established multilateral and bilateral partnerships. First and foremost, obviously, with the United States in the in the security realm, but also with Australia and India in maritime cooperation. Uh, and with other, other international regime actors and participants in the WTO, in UNCLOS, uh, and in the ASEAN-based regional institutions as well. So Japan has not moved away from uh, its comfort zone, so to speak, diplomatically, but has ended, I think, its large reliance on a bilateral understanding with Beijing about how it solves problems. So the policy implications, and again, these are different depending on where you sit, but I sit in Washington, so for talking first about Tokyo, um, I think there's, there, there's struggle on both sides. I have been involved, since, especially since 2012, in a lot of what we call the Track 1.5 dialogues between uh, Chinese foreign policy experts and elites, uh, in large part because the Japanese were not at the table. Uh, so the U.S.-China dialogue, um, and this is a think tank community as well as academic experts, right, who, can, who meet with Chinese experts on a regular basis to talk about shared problems. Uh, in many cases, I was invited along in that community as the one Japan person <laughs> because I could talk about what was happening inside Japan or I could talk about specific policy responses of the Japanese. Um, and I, two things struck me, and I, I'm hoping our China experts in the, in the group will, will pick this up in the discussion period. Um, on the Chinese side, that people for, like Wang Jisu at Beida, um, Zhu Feng and others, right, all of them had deep contacts with Japanese elites and Japanese experts community. These are not people who were isolated in any way. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that were also talking about the US-PRC relationship. Um, but they were foreign policy experts, they were regional experts, and repeatedly over the years, especially when the relationship with Japan was at its worst, um, there was a lot of emotion in the conversation, obviously. Uh, but there was also a kind of, we don't really need to worry about Japan anymore. Really, our focus, China's focus, ought to be the United States. Um, and so there was a couple of years there where I think our expert community, myself included, um, said we're, that's not going to happen. Right? We have to talk about your relationship with Japan, and we have to talk about not only maritime issues, but we have to also talk about how we understand the U.S. alliances in the region. Uh, so there's a very interesting conceptual conversation that I think has happened between at least U.S. experts over time, uh, these last three or four years, um, where Japan was absent from the conversation but f a focal point in the dialogue, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. where this question of how do we understand these alliances, these are Cold War legacies and artifacts, right? why are you protecting Japan? And for those of you who've been paying attention, of course, when the president met with Xi Jinping in, in Sunnylands, that first meeting of the two leaders, uh, maritime disputes, the Japan-China dispute first and foremost, was one of the pieces, one of the agenda items on the U.S. side. Um, that was not a comfortable agenda item on the Chinese side, um, but for the U.S. it has been. Mm -hmm. And so this is not just a Japan-China problem, of course, this is largely, it was largely became a U.S.-China conversation. And people like Zhu Fang and others over the years, the expert community on the China side began to talk about it as the Japan factor in USPRC mm -hmm. relations. So again, there was a conceptual shift, I think, that we could see happening. Uh, not necessarily a, a solution to the problem, and we can talk more about that later, but so this triangle of US, Japan, China now has shifted uh, in large part through the experience of the, of the, of the 
severe、uh, deterioration of the of the China Japan relationship. Let me talk a little bit about the case study material, which will get you into some nuts and bolts. If you're interested, I won't go on at too much length, but let me share with you the four case studies that I covered in the book, and we can come back to the policy issues later if you'd like.、Um, I define the book largely as an examination of why the problem solving between Japan and China was becoming more difficult. Why were solutions difficult to find to, to to discuss, and why were old compromises no longer the the solution to the problem? Right. So some of these issues are old. None of the you know Yaskuni is not a new issue. Of course, you know that over the years Yaskuni Shrine has been a lightning rod for Chinese criticism of Japanese war memory,、um, in particular the prime ministerial visits, starting with Nakasone, again with Koizumi,、uh, and. Sorry, I should put the book up so we can talk about why Koizumi is on the cover, <laughs> and more recently with Abe, Abe's visit in 2014. So many people ask me, why do you have Mr. Koizumi on the cover of the book? And it's largely because the Yaskuni chapter in the book covers the period. I focus in on the period when he was prime minister, and his repeated visits to the shrine,、um, and also, you know, it it it. You'll find in the book a fairly detailed examination of the political. Context within which the Yasukuni Shrine visits happen in Japan.、Um, so, one of the things that was interesting to me is that the Japan-China relationship, in large part, was the reason that Nakasone、uh, did not go、uh, in the mid-1980s, right? And it, the, that was communicated very clearly to him by Chinese leaders, and he stopped going. Right?、Um, Koizumi picked up that mantle again in 2001, largely because he himself. Uh, wanted to go, so he had his own personal reasons for going.、Um, and second, because the conservative cause inside the LDP made it an electoral issue in the leadership race in the party. His contender was Mr. Hashimoto at the time, and he, Mr. Hashimoto, who had been president of the Veterans Association in Japan, stopped short of promising the veterans that he would go, the veterans' families that he would go to Yaskuni. Koizumi instead openly promised. He would go, and in the leadership race, the Izokai, the Veterans Families Association,、uh, rallied around Mr. Koizumi.、Uh, so there's a very complex story there behind Koizumi that's not just about ideology or nationalism,、uh, but it's also about the electoral politics,、uh, and it's about about the way in which the shrine visits fit、uh, in the political narrative、uh, of post-war Japan. Increasingly, and this is what I argue in the chapter. Increasingly, Chinese criticism of the visits became a, a, a leverage for a lot of conservatives to articulate that this was not an issue for foreign intervention. This was an issue, for, a domestic issue for Japan, and so many Japanese, even though they weren't necessarily conservatives or didn't necessarily fully embrace the shrine themselves, felt that foreign countries had no right. To tell Japan what to do, and so if you want to think about that as a kind of spreading spreading nationalism, it's a popular sentiment more than a nationalism, I think, in my mind.、Um, but that's what began to happen: is that Chinese criticism then began to persuade people that they ought to go and take a look at the shrine.、Uh, it became a, a cause to go and visit, and especially、uh, the museum itself. So that chapter really deals with the with the politics there.、Um, By before Mr. Abe came back in power,、uh, it was pretty clear to me that even in the LDP, you were seeing people step back from Yasukuni shrine visits, 
as an incentive for political leadership. So the LDP candidates in the race um, prior to Mr. Abe's selection, very few of them would wanted to go. The next generation LDP leaders had backed away from Yaskuni as a defining uh, factor. Um, the DPJ, as you know, the Democratic Party of Japan, actually as a party said that they would not approve shrine visits by cabinet members to Japan. Uh, individuals could go, but they themselves as a party did not want their cabinet members to visit the shrine. Uh, we can talk more about Mr. Abe and why it began again, but at a certain moment you were beginning to see generational change really take, take root in the political consciousness uh, of many Japanese politicians. Um, the second chapter is on an issue that often gets conflated with the island territorial dispute itself, but it's a separate one, and we can talk more about that as well. It's the maritime boundary dispute. Um, the Japanese and Chinese have shared the East China Sea, of course. No, none of those, neither of those countries have moved. <laughs> the geography hasn't changed. Uh, before ratifying UNCLOS in the mid-1990s, uh, they actually were very effective in bilateral negotiations for fisheries, uh, and other kinds of issues, search and rescue, kind of crisis management across the sea. Uh, Japanese uh, funded a lot of Chinese exploration of oil and gas in, on the continental shelf. So there was a fairly cooperative relationship there. But ironically, uh, UNCLOS put in place incentives uh, for a new and more competitive definition of, of EEZs. So when you get the, the two countries signing on to UNCLOS, China adopts a continental shelf definition of where the, the maritime boundary ought to be, and Japan adopted a median line definition. Again, I'll show you a map later on, so it'll give you more, more focus on what that actually means. But the UN law of the sea acknowledges both claims. Uh, if you are a coastal state uh, you have, and you have a strong, large continental shelf, a geological feature, in fact, that allows you to claim greater access to seabed or fisheries resources, uh, then you get extra territory on your EEZ. You get a, an extra 150 miles. Um, China claims the continental shelf definition uh, of where its maritime boundary ought to be. Not maritime, maritime boundary in the sense of EEZs, not territorial waters. Right? Uh, Japan wants to split the difference right down the middle. So to this date, they have not resolved their differences, although the two countries did in 2008 reach an agreement, a compromise of sorts, that says that we'll, uh, joint, we'll have a joint exploration uh, for energy, and they pick two spots, one of which is wet, wild, wet, widely known, a gas field, on the other side of what Japan calls the median line, that the Chinese were already drilling and the Japanese energy companies really had no interest in. There was a second area, and again, I'll show you this on the map, but there was a second area that was deeper water, unexplored, where Japanese oil and petroleum interests did have a significant uh, commercial interest in trying to explore with the Japanese. But in 2008, despite the agreement by Hu Jintao and Prime Minister Fukuda Yasuo, uh, the implementation agreement for that uh, joint ex energy exploration didn't happen. So the maritime boundary issue is a new issue in a sense. It was created ironically by UNCLOS and the terms of UNCLOS uh, created a more competitive maritime environment. The third chapter um, looks at food security issues. And here, if you were Japanese and you lived in Tokyo, or maybe if you were not Japanese and you lived in Tokyo in the 2007, around 2007 or so, this is the gyoza mondai, uh, gyoza being frozen dumpling, right? 
Um, consumers got sick. They purchased frozen dumplings. Two families in two very separate uh, prefectures were hospitalized. Nobody died, but it was a fairly severe poisoning. Turned out when the Japanese police investigated, it was a criminal act. It wasn't sanitation or, or that kind of a problem. It was, in fact, somebody had in, in, injected a toxic chemical into these, these frozen gyoza. But what it did in Japan is it opened up for many Japanese consumers the reality that the bulk of their processed food was no longer made in Japan. It was actually being processed in China. And the brands were not Chinese. The brands were Japanese. They were well-known Japanese brands. So housewives and shoppers had no idea that the sourcing of their processed food was increasingly China and factories in China. The long and the short of this, this case chapter explores the way in which Jap Japanese were trying to come to terms with a, how to get better regulatory capacity over these products. Uh, this is really a story of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government's insistence on labeling of products and the Japanese corporation's insistence on retooling their factories in China. But the government-to-government -government conversation just never came together until the very end, uh, two or three or maybe even four years down the road, when Chinese consumers were poisoned by the same batch mm. of poisoned, uh, of, of frozen dumplings. And the reason was the factory that closed in northern China as a result of the Japanese poisonings, those, those frozen gyoza were supposed to have been thrown away. But somebody had reoriented them in the domestic market, and they ended up in Chengdu, I believe. And a Chinese family then was poisoned by the same batch. Uh, and at that point, the Chinese quality, the Food Quality Control and Sanitation Department understood that this was really a Chinese problem. It wasn't a problem that they had long thought was really on the Japanese side. So you got prosecution. You got identification and prosecution of the factory worker. Many Japanese thought that this was an anti-Japanese act, right? That this was designed to uh, affect Japanese consumers, but in fact, it had nothing to do with Japan. It was a labor. It was a factory worker in, in, in Hebei province who decided that his management wasn't paying uh, factory workers enough, wasn't giving his wife her maternity leave. So it was a labor dispute, and he was trying to get the attention of his management. Um, but this case study for me is a fascinating case study in the sense that there's no malicious intent. There's no real government engagement, right? This is a, and it's a, it's a case study that reveals just how deeply interdependent these two economies now are. Um, the little coda at the end of that chapter actually also reveals the increasing power of Chinese consumers. Because after 2011, after Fukushima and the, melt, the nuclear meltdown, uh, Chinese consumers stopped buying Japanese food because they were worried about radiation poisoning. Mm -hmm. But the, the real story for all of us here is that the regulatory oversight on food in particular has not kept pace with the remarkable uh, speed of economic interdependence that Japan has experienced with China and the rest of the globe is also experiencing with China. Let me find the final case study we'll talk about in more detail, but the final case study I think most of you are, are aware of because it's the island, it's a chapter called, I, called Island Defenses, which really talks specifically about the Senkaku dispute, but also about the broader tensions in military interactions between the Japanese uh, and Chinese. And of course, here you get the debate over what Japan's military ought to be, how it ought to be organized, how it ought to be redeployed to the southwest of Japan, where most of the pressure from China is coming, 
and where the maritime and air, defense, uh, air defenses were given primacy in terms of how to deal with an encroaching China. And again, that's a little bit more familiar territory. We can talk about the defense side of it a little bit later. Um, in conclusion, my, my computer's restarting. Yes. Should I do something? Postpone. Postpone. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think I did it. Uh, no, I think... Okay, you did it. There. Thank you. Um, I have my uses. <laughs> but the larger story, and again, it's a, it's a fairly complex one, um, is that this is not just a bilateral story for the Japanese. Um, and in each of the case studies, while they revealed their particular pressure points on the Japanese government itself, right, from Japanese interests and advocates, right, um, that the real story, the way people started to frame this issue was not in the bilateral Japan-China relations, but in a deeper anxiety about the post-war order, the context within which Japan had achieved its own success. So whether you think of that order as a liberal global trading order or you think about it as Japan's economic leadership of a developing Asia-Pacific or an order in which you're thinking about the U.S.-Japan alliance and the closeness of that bilateral security bargain that has been sustained by the Japanese for 70-some years, 60-some years now, um, there is a deeper anxiety that this rising China, this complicated, transforming China, is really calling into question this context within which the Japanese have, have existed and succeeded and which nobody really in Japan sees beyond in terms of different choices and different goals for the Japanese themselves. So that's the book the long, complicated story of the book. Mm. But what I thought I'd do, if we have time, is we've got maybe a couple more minutes, sure. is to share with you a little bit, you know, to, again, telescoping out from Japan-China a little bit, and this will get us into policy, I think, in the discussion session, especially contemporary U.S. policy, but policy all around, is to look a little bit about, telescope out a little bit to talk about the region. I now teach a course at Georgetown uh, on the island disputes of Asia. And we have a lot of fun in that course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not just about Senkakus or Diaoyu. But we use the island disputes a little bit as a lens on the, the various axes of tension that you're starting to see in the region. And so I thought it would be just be useful to talk a little bit about these issues. The Japan-China territorial dispute, of course, is not the only one. There are disputes all the way up. Not all disputes involve China, by the way, of course. Japan has three separate ones, only one of which is with, with China. So you can start all the way up with the Kurils or the Northern Territories, as the Japanese refer to them, and that continues to be a focal point in the diplomacy with Russia. Um, I use the term Liancourt Rocks largely because I get into trouble <laughs> if I talk about Dokto or Takeshima, so I use the old-fashioned Liancourt Rocks. Um, but that is clearly has become a deep point of contention between South Korea and Japan as well. Also a story of historical legacy, but also of the deepening domestic uh, challenges on both sides to, to moving beyond that relationship. And of course, we've watched the, the one case where you're most likely to see an actual armed conflict arise, which is, you know, which is the North-South Korean uh, dispute over the islands in the nor beyond the northern limit line, right? The artificial designation of that northern limit line and how it creates uh, tensions between North and South Korea. Today, of course, we talk a lot about the island disputes of South China Sea. Um, not only the paracels between Vietnam and, and China, but also the Scarborough, um, not Scarborough, sorry, the Spratleys, in which the Philippine and China dispute over Scarborough is, is prominent, but increasingly there are others as well. Um, I thought it's also useful when we talk about Senkaku. I use Senkaku large because the U.S. government 
uses Senkaku. The Japanese government uses Senkaku. Um, but of course, these are the Diaoyu for the Chinese. Um, they're small little rocks. There is no water supply. Um, you know, under UNCLOS, they may or may not be islands because there is no uh, water supply and therefore there's no legitimate human uh, habitation. Although in the, in the late 1800s, sorry, uh, and into the early 1930s, about 200 or so Japanese actually did live there. There was a factory uh, that produced katsuobushi, bonito flakes, uh, and also sold guano, which is seagull. Droppings. Droppings. Hey, that's, that's a nice British word. Thank yes. you. <laughs> Seagull droppings. But which was a huge source of um, fertilizer for the Taiwanese as well as for others in Okinawa. Um, but I just want to also show you when we think about Coast Guards visiting and citizen activists, which my book talks an awful lot about these people, people, Japanese, Taiwanese, Hong Kong-based Chinese activists going back and forth, right? Uh, this is a long way to go. These are isolated islands. They're not right next door to any of the countries that claim them, uh, Taiwan, China, or, or Japan. Uh, and it's also, you know, I was down in Ishigaki doing research there among the fishermen and, and um, the local government officials who do go out to the islands or try to go out to the islands. It's a five to ten hour journey uh, in a very small fishing boat in very dangerous waters. And I'll show you in a second. There's a black current that runs through, which makes it very rich waters for fishermen. And the Taiwanese and the Okinawan fishermen have long used those fishing grounds because of that. Uh, seasonally, it is a very, um, very interesting place to fish. But it's also prone to typhoons and rough seas. Uh, and there's no shelter anywhere. There's no ports in the Senkaku Islands. Although the Japanese at some point wanted to build a port that would allow mariners um, protection from the storms. They didn't, in large part because of the Japan-China relationship. Um, the Coast Guard at one point in the 70s was going to build a heliport there, again, for search and rescue purposes. But that was also forestalled because of the diplomacy between Japan and China and the territorial differences. Um, but it's a long way to go. And when you see pictures on the television about activists who go out there, they go out in the same little boats. Uh, many jump off the boats and try to swim to the islands. It's an extraordinarily treacherous place to try and operate. Um, so if you're in a, in a Coast Guard vessel or if you're in a naval vessel, you're a little bit better equipped. But if you're a fisherman or you're an activist, you're in a little flimsy boat with very big waves and a long, long way from people who can rescue you. Uh, this is a Japanese Coast Guard graph. Um, that really tracks the activity now from 2012 forward. So in 2012, you probably know already, um, China and Japan began to um, have a real contest over who was going to patrol the islands and who actually had sovereignty, and the Chinese uh, sent their ships for the first time on regular patrols around the Senkakus. Uh, they continue to be there today at a, a fairly predictable level with uh, the same numbers of ships. They're now the, the Chinese Coast Guard, but the same uh, identification on ships. So it's a fairly regularized patrol. There are four ships at the moment, and that, this just shows you the, the bump of what happened in 2012, the frequency now and the, the number and, and frequency of interactions into territorial waters in the red, um, which is the 12 nautical miles, and the blue in the contiguous waters which is waters outside of the 12 nautical mile line. Oopsie, I apologize. Too many. It's always useful to think a little bit about, you know, we, we, especially in the Japan-China dispute, we get very focused on those little islands. Um, 
But here you have a broader uh, map that actually talks. This is our Defense Department um, that has an annual report on China and Chinese behavior. Uh, it's requested by our Congress, so it's mandated. Our, they have to write the report every year. And from year to year, it focuses on slightly different aspects uh, of, of the Chinese uh, military um, and its behavior. So this is a map from the 2013 uh, DOD report. Um, but it shows you that not all of the claims, right, are maritime. China has, in fact, had, uh, it's a huge co country with a large border, land border. It has had disputes with virtually every neighbor on sovereignty on land. Um, Taylor Travell, if you know him at MIT, uh, wrote an excellent book, in fact, uh, on the Chinese negotiation of these differences with its neighbors. Uh, he focused largely on land claims and land differences. And his conclusion was that China has been very pragmatic in the way that it resolves these differences. Uh, we tend to get a little carried away with the rhetoric of the moment. <laughs> uh, but if you take a longer historical look at territorial boundary claims, sovereignty claims and dispute resolution, the Chinese have a fairly good track record um, of negotiation and compromise with their neighbors, largely on, around on the land boundaries. I think the maritime issues are a little bit more complex. Uh, and at this point, too, they're also, because of UNCLOS, whether you have an island or an islet or a reef, in large fact, feeds into this question of where your EEZ, how you define your EEZ. It also feeds into broader historical arguments about China's maritime space. Right. Um, this is largely based. This is an, this is largely based for an American audience, but I also like to remind an American audience in particular that um, the United States, of course, is very dependent on trade. Uh, trade routes, including access to the Malacca Straits for oil and gas and other kinds of resources and uh, consumer products, um, China is too. So if you look at this map on the, uh, on the Straits of Malacca, I don't have a pointer, but you'll see them down there in Southeast Asia right there in kind of the middle of the map. Um, this, again, is a date. It may be dated a little bit because it's a 2013 rendition, uh, but China is as dependent as we are on open straits in the Straits of Malacca. Most of Northeast a North Asia, I'm sorry, East Asia, Japan, South Korea, and the Southeast Asian states themselves are even more dependent. It's a 90 percentile if you start to think about that. So the open use of the Straits of Malacca um, is a critical, that's a critical choke point for all of the nations of East Asia. So I separate out the Asia, the territory, the maritime, I'm sorry, the island disputes from the maritime boundaries in large part because it gets very fuzzy, mm -hmm. what we're talking about, especially in terms of dispute resolution and which mechanisms are appropriate and which mechanisms are effective. And let me just run very quickly through uh, what's largely an unclose, unclose kind of conversation here. Um, this is from the book. I was talking earlier about the differences that Japan and China now have over their maritime boundary in the East China Sea. Uh, you'll see the dark line through the middle. That's the line that the Japanese argue ought to be the maritime boundary, which is they refer to as the median line. The dotted line that goes out from the right, you'll see Senkaku Islands right there, but the dotted line that goes up, that's the edge of the continental shelf, and that's the, that's the line that the Chinese argue ought to be um, the basis upon which the maritime boundary is claimed. Um, so there's quite a bit of difference there. And to date, it hasn't, you know, the difference in between has not caused any great tension. Militaries aren't organized around these lines. So again, this is just simply a, a legal argument that both countries make about this question of where the maritime boundary ought to be set. 
This is a more interesting map for those of you who think about security issues, of course. This is what's under the sea. Um, and it's, interest, it's important for resource reasons as well as for military reasons. But again, the continental shelf, you can see the topography there of the continental shelf. Uh, I pointed out where the Senkakus themselves are. Again, this is in the book. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's in the book. The Okinawa Trough is a very deep and steep um, um, valley, I suppose you'd call it. Um, probably 2,000 meters deep. And then you have the volcanic ridge there that is all of the Ryukyu Islands or the Okinawan Islands, right? So Ishigaki, Miyako, and then up the main island there where Naha is. And then you come off the other side, the, the eastern side of Japan and into the deep trenches of the Pacific Ocean. <coughs> You'll see also Taiwan, uh, where Taiwan is situated there in terms of... Uh, submarine activity, and now if you think about the military applications here, then clearly the Okinawa Trough is an important place for submarine activity, as is the Western Pacific. This is a, a graphic, again, that the Japanese government has issued relatively recently, um, and it basically points out where the gas field, the gas rigs are um, that have been constructed by China. None of these are brand new. Some of them are newer than others, uh, and some the ones that are up there in the dashed line are newly being are newly being built. Um, Pinghu has been around for a very long time. I think it's since the 80s. Uh, so some of these structures are old, but I think the idea here is simply to point out that this is where the, the the Chinese are building oil rigs. And again, interestingly enough, they are respecting even if they don't agree on the median line, they are respecting the line that they based the 2008 Joint Energy Development Agreement on. Um, Japan's Japan, today, the Japanese government worries somewhat that there may be radar stations or listening devices or other kinds of military uh, uses for these oil rigs, but it's important that you see the graphic here. Now, um, we can talk more about the South China Sea, I think, in the discussion, if mm -hmm. you'd like, but yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an interesting merging of both the maritime boundary issues with the, 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 com the complicated and multinational contested claims in the region, and we can come back to that if you're interested there. Um, two points to conclude. Uh, I think for the United States, uh, we are not, as you know, uh, we have not ratified the UN Law of the Sea, unfortunately. We ought to, in my personal opinion, but we have not. And our national policy, however, still is based on uh, the UN law of the sea. So when you hear conversations about freedom of navigation uh, exercises and the operations and things like that, our Navy is one of the biggest proponents of UNCLOS, <laughs> but our Senate uh, resists the temptation at this point to sign on. I think it's going to be a problem for the United States, but it, it's a particular problem that we are not part of the conversation officially uh, on these issues. But I think for Japan and China, there are some pretty obvious vehicles here mm -hmm. for thinking about a broader and deeper conversation about the region. So I don't want to leave you with the idea that Japan and China are destined mm -hmm. to be in conflict, mm -hmm. but I think it's going to take a fairly concerted effort on both sides to invest in building these kinds of dispute resolution mechanisms, particularly the maritime, because both countries have maritime ambitions, and that's clear. Um, but I do think at the moment there's a very tenuous uh, beginning to trying to get back to a more normalized diplomacy. Mm -hmm. When she and Abe met in November of last year, 2014, uh, I thought one of the most important things that was said 
is that both Xi and Abe recognize the need to reduce the risk of military conflict across the East China Sea. Mm -hmm. So the two governments have been engaged in a risk reduction conversation, and that is paralleled by a U.S. PRC conversation, the mill-to-mill conversation on how to avoid inadvertent, mm -hmm. uh, unintended clashes between the two militaries. So I expect that this, if not this year, at least early next year, you're probably going to see more of the Japan-China agreement. It will be announced, uh, I suspect, the next time that she meets with Abe. Uh, informally, the Japanese have invited uh, Xi Jinping uh, to Tokyo in the spring, and mm. that invitation was carried by Yamaguchi Natsuo, who is the head of the Komeito Party, uh, the ruling party, part of the ruling coalition. Uh, it's not a formal state uh, visit invitation mm. yet, mm. but it's the first overture uh, to try to see if that can be realized. I think we should be cautiously optimistic about the diplomacy, but my personal view is it's going to take a lot more demonstrated bilateral mm -hmm. effort mm -hmm. and proven problem-solving before the Japanese public will have a little bit more confidence that this is a sustainable relationship of cooperation. Mm -hmm. So let me stop there. Okay. Well, okay. thank you very much indeed. That was just terrific.